Welcome to Rise to Offend, a podcast that exhorts people who rose to offend in society and their legacy today. I'm your host, Petra Speich, and this week we are doing part one of two on Steve Biko, a South African activist that often gets overlooked in history, but was a priceless voice to a nation that was systematically oppressing its majority population. Famously stating, the most potent weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. Born December 18, 1946 in King Williamstown, South Africa, in what is now known as the Eastern Cape Province, Bantu Stephen Biko would be born into a world whose laws would decimate any forward movement for his people. The build a vast number of blacks, after all their experiences, yes. be able uh, to live a life without giving vent to feelings of revenge, of... Uh, uh, yes, we, we believe it is the duty of the vanguard political movement which brings about change to educate people's outlooks. I mean, in the same way that blacks have never lived in a, a socialist economic system, they've got to live to learn to live in one. In the same way that they've always lived in a racially divided society, they've got to learn to live in a non-racial society. And joining me as always, Brandon Hahn and Jocelyn Sharp. Bantu Stephen Biko was born on December 18, 1946 in King Williamstown, South Africa. He was born in his grandmother's house and the third child of Matthew and Alice Biko. He had an older sister named Buklasava and older brother named Kaya, born with the native tradition and language known as Kosa. The Kosas were, were technically, they were, they were basically pacifists of the Zulus. They were, yeah. you know, they were chased out, they separated from the tribe. So they right. weren't as, like the Zulus were really our proud. In, in, yeah. in terms of military, they, they are our pride and joy. They are... With the Asagais. Yeah, yeah, everything they did was revolutionary. Just like, you know, the, the first cat, they were the first ones with the shortened spear. So Shaka invented a, a spear that was quicker to stab with and not as cumbersome to right, like to around. Right, like a little jab. Yes, yeah, yes, yes. Because yeah. the spear hadn't really been changed over all those years, and he, mm. so he, he changed adapted. that. He changed everything. He, changed, he was one of the best military, yeah. you know. You guys, if it wasn't for the guns, you guys wouldn't be here. I know. The Kosa people in the late 1940s had a literacy rate of 30% and made 18% of the African population. They would speak their native tongue, but would not learn English until later years in primary school, with many not completing the education. Before they could reload. Are you, do you have Zulu blood in you? I, 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 I do, I guess, yes, because I mean, Kosa people are of oh, you're Zulus. Kosa, oh, do that yes, again. I'm half Kosa. Oh, do it again. So, oh, I love Kosa. that. I can't do that. I love that. It's given as an exclamation that's, mark, that's isn't the, it? That, yeah, no, that's that the X. Click. So that's, there's the three clicks. There's the X, which is the... And then there's the, the Q, and then there's the uh, C, which is... So those are the three different... Matthew Biko, Steve's father, was a police officer, and Steve would grow up in Ginsburg Township in the settlement of approximately 800 families. The conditions were very poor, with every four families having to share a water supply and toilet. What is behind the firm, continued refusal of African women to accept passes? Well, um... The passes have been enforced in South Africa for a very long time among the men. And it has become very clear that the pass system in South Africa is the basis of forced and cheap labor. Now to impose such a system up on the African women is to create hardships. Firstly, African women will have to produce these passes on demand. If they fail to do so, they will be arrested in the streets they will be stopped at stations, they will be stopped as they visit one another in the locations, and if they haven't got those passes, they will be immediately arrested and brought before the court. Now, African men 
who value their women just as any other people value their women, say what will happen to their children. By the age of two, in 1948, South Africa would officially pass and start installing apartheid laws. The word apartheid was a African word that means apartness. Ladies, why was the Black Sash formed in the first place? Well, the Black Sash was formed in the first place because the nationalist government introduced the Senate bill into Parliament. It was a bill to expand the size of the Senate to almost double the size of its original size. And you fear that this would do what? Well, we felt that it was a legal trick, or we didn't know whether it was legal then, but we felt it was a piece of trickery and against the spirit of the Constitution. What has been the official government reaction to your well, protests of mourning? Uh, the uh, government have ridiculed us for mourning. They don't understand or say they don't understand why women should stand mourning a constitution. They think we would be much better staying at home and looking after our children. And obviously you both disagree. <laughs> well, we think that we do look after our children. We feel very much that this is looking after our children, because after all, it's the future of our children we're worried about. Uh, if I had no children, I don't think my interest would be nearly as keen. In the 1948 election, the National Party would be elected and segregation laws would start to be implemented. In this connection, it's been said that the South African woman, the white woman, occupies a privileged position in the world because of the abundance of servants and cheap labor here. Wouldn't this somehow conflict with what you're trying to do, arouse women to a protest? Yes, it does. I think that we are very privileged women in that we are not tied to the kitchen sink as, uh, as so many women are in other parts of the world. And I think that is all the more reason why women should play their full part in uh, uh, the duties of an individual in a democracy. We feel that democracy cannot work unless every individual knows what her obligations are in a democracy. But I think you're putting the standard of morals very low if you reckon that we are going to go on supporting apartheid just in order to keep our servants. The definition of apartheid, according to its Wikipedia page, is apartheid was characterized by an authoritarian political culture based on white supremacy, which encouraged state repression of black Africans, colored and Asian South Africans for the benefit of the nation's minority white population. After World War II, how do you think something like this passed through legislation? <laughs> um, I, can I phone a friend? <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I can't. I, I, it's amazing to me that you wouldn't even learn learn your lesson from a thing like world war ii and then not only that from what america has already gone through initially with racism with, with slavery and that type of stuff i mean i understand that that was still things were still pretty bad back in the 40s it wasn't apartheid bad but it was still pretty terrible i don't still know segregated like, these are the types of things where it's like and again it's south africa it can easily just slide underneath the radar what black consciousness seeks to do is to produce at the output end of the process real black people who do not regard themselves as appendages to white society. This truth cannot be reversed. We do not need to apologize for this because it is true that the white systems have produced through the world a number of people who are not aware that they too 
our people. Our adherence to values that we set for ourselves can also not be reversed because it will always be a lie to accept wide values as necessarily the best. The fact that a synthesis may be attained only relates to the adherence to power politics. Someone somewhere along the line will be forced to accept the truth. And here we believe that ours is the truth. When you come out of a racially charged war, any of them across the world, there was racially charged war because there were people who believed that that what is to us the morally wrong side of the argument was right. And those people still exist. You know, they didn't die. They're just they didn't win the war. You know, so there was people all over the world who who were fighting on the other side. It's not that nobody learned their lesson. It's just that sometimes there's more people who believe the wrong thing than the right thing the importance of black solidarity to the various segments of the black community must not be understated. There have been in the past a lot of suggestions that there can be no viable unity amongst blacks because they hold each other in contempt. Coloreds despise Africans because they, the former, by their proximity to the Africans, may lose the chances of assimilation into the white world. Africans despise the Coloreds and the Indians for a variety of reasons. Indians not only despise Africans, but in many instances also exploit the Africans in job and shop situations. All these stereotype attitudes have led to mountainous intergroup suspicions amongst the blacks. What we should do at all times is to look at the fact that one, we are all oppressed by the same system. Two, that we are oppressed to varying degrees is a deliberate design to stratify us, not only socially, but also in terms of aspirations. And on top of that, too, I really do think as a worldview, again, there was still plenty of racism back in those days. Mm-hmm. Black, black people in general, in the whole world, were viewed as lesser than. And at that time, you look at South, South Africa, and it's, it's all white, it's getting up with the times, They're taking it out of a third world country view. And to the outside, they're like, well, they're making it better. Look at the buildings. Look at the things that they're putting in in play. I don't think they read the fine print. Three, it is to be expected that in terms of the enemy's plan, there must be the suspicion. And that if we are committed to the problem of emancipation to the same degree, it is part of our duty to bring to the attention of black people the deliberateness of the enemy's subjugation scheme. Four, we should go on with our program, attracting to it only committed people, and not just those who are eager to see an equitable distribution of groups amongst our ranks. This is a game common among liberals. The one criterion that must govern us is our commitment to action. The white minority would be educated and come from various parts of Eastern Europe and use that education and laws to legally take control and power of the majority of Africans who many still believed and practiced in the ancient cultures and language like Kosa and Zulu. In my own analysis and that of my friends, there was some kind of anomaly in this situation where whites were in fact the main participants in our oppression and at the same time the main participants uh, in the opposition to that oppression. It implies therefore that at no stage in this country were blacks 
throwing in their lot in the shift of political opinion. Uh, the arena was totally controlled by whites in what we called uh, totality of white power at the time. So we argued that uh, any uh, changes which are to come can only come as a result of a program worked out by black people. And for black people to be able to work out a program, they need to defeat the one main element in politics which was working against them, and this was a psychological feeling of inferiority, which was deliberately cultivated by the system. So equally, too, the whites, in order to be able to listen to blacks, needed to defeat the one problem which they had, which was one uh, uh, superiority. The lack of education and assimilation to the Western culture and ideals of the white culture allowed them to be taken advantage of, and many laws to instill the power of the white minority would start to become effective without a political voice opposing them. We as Christians believe the development of the non-white people, and we certainly uh, try to develop them as far as possible by building their churches, giving, subsidizing them in their church work, and we are also trying to uh, give them leadership where they want it, and our uh, experience is that these people prefer to be left in their own churches. As a matter of fact, there are nine different uh, non-white churches uh, belonging to the Dutch Reformed Church amongst the non-white people and they prefer that. The lack of education and knowledge of rights can do what to a nation of people who did not participate or hold any political power during a regime that saw them as a lesser form of human. We went through this, you know, recently. We we have this conversation still. You know, the the fairness of a voting system when not everyone's aware of their right to vote or not everyone understands how to get their right to vote uh, means that you don't have a true vote. You know, there's something wrong with not supplying people with the tools they need to, to defend themselves, at the very least. And this led to some kind of political emasculation of the black population especially, with the result that... There was no participation by blacks in the articulation of their own aspirations. The whole opposition to uh, what the government was doing to blacks came in fact, in fact from white organizations, mainly student groups like NUSAS, the Liberal Party, the Progressive Party, and blacks who were articulate in any sense were far uh, few by comparison to the olden days and they were dispersed amongst these particular organizations. But again, this is coming from what I think was going on is you just had a bunch of educated people that understood how the rest of the world was working. They basically just slowly start to take over South Africa. They're talking about all these ancient ways that they were still practicing, by the way. A huge majority of them were still practicing, by the way. So when somebody from other countries were like, hey, who's in charge here? Oh, I've read a book. I could talk to you. That's what was going on. I mean, unfortunately, the majority of those people were all Eastern Europeans. Is the government convinced that the African wants and accepts apartheid as a development policy? For obvious reasons, many opponents of this policy tried to influence the Bantu people in the other direction. And like all new philosophies, like all new uh, policies, we had to put our case to the Bantu people. And I can safely say today that the Bantu people 
are accepting the policy of self-development, which essentially is apart with apartheid essentially is in an ever-increasing tempo. I feel confident that the Bantu leadership of Africa, rural and urban, will, by the turn of next year, show in a most marked way that they are satisfied that this policy leads to their salvation. The Nationalist Party painted all black Africans as uneducated, and doing this, two things happened. Many accepted this mindset and the way they were treated, and others strived to prove them wrong. Unfortunately, the majority stayed complacent against any kind of mobilized uniform because surviving was a day-to-day occurrence, and the extreme poor had to focus solely on that. Mr. Nakwe, Mr. Prinslow of the Native Affairs Department, told me in Pretoria this week that the African accepts and wants apartheid as a stage of development. Do you, sir, agree? Well, uh, Mr. Prinslow's information and mine, and I and claim to be slightly more informed than Mr. Prinslow because I live among the Africans and I am an African, cannot be quite correct at all. The African people are realizing that apartheid means nothing else but oppression and exploitation. Will education and knowledge always lead to power against those who don't have it or want to possess it? Absolutely. Education is the most important thing on the planet. I mean, you have to be aware of what's going on, and you also have to be able to communicate with people that might not be able to speak your language. That is education. You have to learn multiple ways to communicate. You have to learn how things work. You have to be able to read scripts from other nations, from other wise men or whatever, you know, and we just kind of learn how to make society function. I mean, like, and if you don't have that kind of education and you're, meanwhile, you know, you're, you're setting something on fire and you're praying to God for, for God's will to come down, that's pretty much what was going on with some of these ancient cultures. I mean, that's like, obviously the person, the, that's where the old saying comes from, the pen is mightier than the sword. Black people under the smart government were oppressed, but they were still men. They failed to change the system for many reasons, which we shall not consider here. But the type of black man we have today has lost his manhood. Reduced to an obliging shell, he looks with awe at the white power structure and accepts what he regards as the inevitable position. Deep inside, his anger mounts at the accumulating insult, but he vents it in the wrong direction, on his fellow man in the township on the property of black people. No longer does he trust leadership. Well, and <clears throat> well, that's what survival of the fittest turned into. You know, when we were out in the wild and survival of the fittest was about physical prowess and who could, you know, run the fastest and hunt the best. And, and as we've evolved as a culture, survival of the fittest has come, you know, to, to be competitive professionally and education-wise and business-wise. It's just another format of survival of the fittest. Unfortunately, you know, we have this, we've talked about this a lot in a lot of different subjects. We have this thought process and we're all humans and we have compassion and humanity and we want to say like, well, it should be a fair shake for everybody. But if there's somebody who's willing to work a little bit harder, they're going to get it. That's just the way it works. Mr. Prinslow, as you are no doubt aware, most criticism of apartheid outside the union is based largely on moral grounds. For example, the morality of separate residential areas in the cities of the union, past laws, lack of voting rights, and so on. How would you reply to this? As far as residential areas are concerned, the practical situation is that until about 10 years ago, there were no residential areas for urban Bantu people. It is only in the last few years 
that such areas were set aside on a planned basis and developed at a terrific pace as you can see all around you. This housing scheme, which now houses more than 30,000 urban Bantu who work in Pretoria, was a bare plain a mere four years ago. I think that is a complete answer to the so-called immorality of separate residential areas. In the political field, we are creating an outlet in that we are proclaiming Bantu authorities in all the major Bantu areas of the Union. We have already brought into life more than 300 such authorities where Bantu who have the inclination, the training and the moral courage to start developing their own people can do so with all possible assistance from the government. Sometimes it's just not fair, the gun versus the arrow. Yeah. You know, a lot of times in a lot of history, like when we even talk about America with the Native Americans and stuff like that, it's the gun versus the arrow, you know? Um, if someone wants it more and someone's planning to do something or take it to a level that you don't see coming, then obviously you can't react properly. For lack of a better word, you're SOL. And you have to, you know, accept. And that's the thing. Psychologically, when you accept, oh, I am this, that's when the fighting kind of dissipates, you know, and then you just are complacent. Unfortunately, for these laws to ever have happened, that had to have uh, somehow beat down a certain culture for them to get by. One should not waste time here dealing with manifestations of material want of the black people. A vast literature has been written on this problem. Possibly, a little should be said about spiritual poverty. What makes the black man fail to take? Is he convinced in his own accord of his inabilities? Does he lack in his genetic makeup that rare quality that makes a man willing to die for the realization of his aspirations? Or is he simply a defeated person? The answer to this is not a clear-cut one. It is, however, nearer to the last suggestion than anything else. The logic behind white domination is to prepare the black man for the subservient role in this country. Not so long ago, this used to be freely said in Parliament, even about the educational system of the black people. It is still said even today, although in a much more sophisticated language. To a large extent, the evildoers have succeeded in producing at the output end of their machine a kind of black man who is only man in form. This is the extent to which the process of dehumanization has advanced. I just think that for these laws to happen, number one, if you did stand up and fight for your rights, you were putting yourself, you're putting your family, mm -hmm. you're putting everything that matters in jeopardy. Because back in those days, it wasn't like we happened, like when we have discussions here in America, you disagree with me? Well, F you on Facebook. Right. No, you disagree with me, you're getting a bold in the head. And that's that's the problem. And your family. That's the problem where everyone thinks it's so easy to be an activist. And that and that's why we, we should revere them and treat them as the brave, amazing people that they are. Because people put their lives at risk in situations like in, in real, actual conflict. And not the fake conflict that we see today. And not the shit that's like people's lives aren't in danger like there, there's there's parts of this world where people just defending their own right to live puts their life in danger how does it make you feel when you are aware that your beloved country is the subject of so much worldwide condemnation 
Well, I, you see, I have so many friends in other countries, Mr. McCutcheon, and I know that I don't... Uh, I'm not the subject of their condemnation, and I must say that makes it much easier for me to bear, <laughs> see. But I understand well the reasons for this condemnation, and much of it is justified. But uh, it doesn't personally make me unhappy, except I would say this, that when I go overseas, and I meet people who... Uh, start condemning South Africa, that very often I find myself, my blood beginning to get warmer, and I find myself defending it, even defending the government, in fact. The apartheid laws, which were segregation of the white minority from the black majority, started passing laws that would ensure that they would maintain control and power over them, and these laws would pass unopposed for many years. In what, what examples, for example? Well, I can give you one very good example. I'm, I remember sitting next to a fellow at dinner in uh, San Francisco. And he said to me, this Dr. Milano this must be a very vicious old man. And I said to him, I said, you know, that's not true. Actually, Dr. Milano is in, in his own particular white world. He's, he's quite a, a nice old gentleman. But when he comes into the world of race, and when race morality becomes his supreme morality, which it is, that's what apartheid is, it's race morality, then he will take any step whatsoever to ensure the supremacy of his own people. In other words, Mr. McCutcheon, if you make your own survival your supreme moral value, then you're, you're capable of almost anything, even though you're a nice old man. In 1950, it was officially illegal to have any sexual relations across racial lines, and that would be called the Immortality Amendment Act of 1949. By 1950, they would pass the Population Registration Act, and this would classify all people into four racial categories, white, black, colored, or Indian. Depending on which classification you were placed in on this would ensure you different rights, and the rights of those who were black were the least amount of freedom and rights. A people without a positive history is like a vehicle without an engine. Their emotions cannot be easily controlled and channeled in a recognizable direction. They always live in the shadow of a more successful society. Hence, in a country like ours, they are forced to celebrate holidays like Paul Kruger's Day, Heroes Day, Republic Day, and so on. All of which are occasions during which the humiliation of defeat is at once revived. Then too, one can extract from indigenous cultures a lot of positive virtues which should teach the Westerner a lesson or two. The oneness of community, for instance, is at the heart of our culture. The easiness with which Africans communicate with each other is not forced by authority, but is inherent in the makeup of African people. Thus, whereas the white family can stay in an area without knowing its neighbors, Africans develop a sense of belonging to the community within a short time of coming together. Can you in any way blame the people of South Africa for allowing a small minority to come in and instill these laws and is complacency for rights a common mindset? Complacency is absolutely a, co a common mindset. That can happen any time, you know what I mean? And a lot of the times, too, it's just based in fear. So I can easily see somebody going, all right, I I'll play by your rules. Just don't kill my family. I don't believe for a moment that we are going to willingly drop our belief in the non-violence uh, stance as of now. But I can't predict what will happen in the future in as much as I can predict what the enemy is going to do. But by the opposition. And if the opposition is prepared to fight in the best of the world, 
conflict can be avoidable. I get that people want to like say like, oh, blame, you know, like you should have done something. But it, that's so easy. It's never people who are in the situation saying you should have done something or I should have done something. It's always people on the outside being like, well, why? Like complacency makes it sound so aloof when it's less about complacency. And I agree with you. I think that it's more about survival. There is times when you cannot do what is a hundred percent the right thing because it will endanger the lives of your family members and endanger the life of your daughter or your son or your wife or your husband. And that's just not the risk. You know, a lot of these young kids that want to be railing against shit online these days don't know what it's like to put value in another human being or be responsible for that person's life. Are you familiar with the language in some of these documents the accused have discussed with black groups? Yes, since some of those documents were drawn out by me. The one noting with concern and disgust the naked terrorism of the government? That is correct. You say naked terrorism. Do you honestly think that is a valid statement? Well, I think it is a far more valid statement than the charges against these men here. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yes, really. I'm not talking about words. I'm talking about the violence in which people are better on charge by police, beaten up. I'm talking about police firing on unarmed people. I'm talking about the indirect violence you get through starvation in the townships. I'm talking about the hopelessness, the desolation of the transit camps. Now, I think that, all put together, that constitutes more terrorism than the words these men have spoken here, but they stand charged. <laughs> and white society is not charged. Apartheid would plague South Africa for decades, and after these laws were put in place, the culture was being taught of their place, and injustices were commonplace. 3.5 million non-white South Africans were removed from their homes and placed into segregated neighborhoods. A massive eviction on a large scale, all due to race. And it was all legally done. Born shortly before 1948, I have lived all my conscious life in the framework of institutionalized separate development. My friendships, my love, my education, my thinking, and every other facet of my life have been carved and shaped within the context of separate development. In stages during my life, I have managed to outgrow some of the things the system taught me. Hopefully, what I propose to do now is to take a look at those who participate in opposition to the system, to participate not from a detached point of view, but from the point of view of a black man, conscious of the urgent need for an understanding of what is involved in the new approach black consciousness. Steve Biko's father, Matthew, would leave the police force as apartheid took over the country due to what he was being forced to do to his people. And many black would leave the police force, creating an all-white police force in many areas. He would get a job at the King Williamstown Native Affairs Office and start to study for a law degree, something many COSA people started to do in efforts to catch up to these inhumane laws that were being passed. But by 1950, at the age of four, his father would fall ill and never complete his work due to the priority of whites, even at hospitals. Matthew Bika would pass away, leaving Alice to take care of Steve, his sister, and his brother alone. In the same way that they've always lived in a racially divided society, they've got to learn to live in a non-racial society. They've got many things to learn, and all these must be brought to them and explained to the people by the vanguard movement which is leading the revolution 
so that uh, I, I've got no doubt in my mind that uh, people, and I know people in terms of my own background where I stay, are not necessarily revengeful, nor are they sadistic in outlook. Now, the black man has got no ill intentions for the white man. The black man is only incensed at the white man to the extent that he wants to entrench himself in a position of uh, power to exploit the black man. But beyond that, nothing more. And we don't need any artificial majorities, any artificial laws to entrench ourselves in power because we believe once we come into power, our share number will uh, maintain up there. So we do not have the same fear that the minority white government has been having all along. Alice, Steve's mother, had to get a job as domestic work in white households, and Steve would be present at these times. And what he saw happen to his mother as a child and the working conditions she endured is noted as a spark of his earliest rage towards a change. And you believe that by these means you will bring about a real change of the society? I see this as only an expression, one form of an expression of discontent inside. I'm of the view that uh, the whole change process is going to be a protracted one in this country. It depends entirely on the degree to which the nationalist government is prepared to hold on to power. And my own analysis is that they are wanting to hold on to power and fight with their backs to the wall. Now, conflict could only be avoidable if they were prepared to avoid it. Those who are at the seeking end, that is, those who want justice, who want an egalitarian society, uh, can only pursue their aspirations according to the resistance offered by the opposition. And if the opposition is prepared to fight their best to the war, conflict can be avoidable. Alice knew in order to change assimilation was key and they would be raised in a Christian environment and his older brother Kaya and sister made a stern focus on education in the household, something that their father implemented for himself and his family, not having a childhood away from books. His mother forced him to read and excel in every way possible in order for him to get a higher education, and she would push Steve to continue in the quest of his father. Well, the government, of course, as you know, says that all this unrest really is due to communist agitation. Are you a communist? We are by no means communists. Uh, neither do I believe for a moment that uh, the unrest is due to communist agitation. I do know for a fact that um, there has been participation, it would appear anyway, from science, by a lot of people in the unrest. But the primary reason behind the unrest is simple lack of patience by the young folk with a government which is refusing to change. Refusing to change in the educational sphere, which is where they were directing themselves, and also re refusing to change in a broader political situation. How vital was Steve Biko's mother's decision to assimilate and use the power of the education system and religion to the creation of Steve Biko? She's looking at it like, look at what the weapons these white Eastern Europeans are using. Education. We got to beat them at their own game. Because if we come at them, like you just said, mm -hmm. with the arrow and they have guns, we're going to lose. So we have to beat them at their own game. So Steve, read as many books as you can, especially books on the law learn how things work, learn how things are happening in the outside world, and then form a plan. Without a plan, you got nothing. And, that, and his mother definitely set that in motion. Mr. Payton, as magnificent as this country is physically, aren't there those who find it difficult, if not impossible, to continue living in this climate of fear? Oh, yes. 
Oh, yes. Uh, I know quite a number of people who have finally decided to leave the country. Perhaps for their own sakes, perhaps for the sake of their children. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, again, I think this is probably a mother just wanting to give her son every tool possible to survive in case she left the planet, you know? You know, his father already died. If, if she were to leave, what what would they have? And, you know, there was obviously some passion for, for reading and education in, in young Steve. And, and as she pushed him, the more she pushed him, the more that he learned. A number of organizations now currently fighting against apartheid are working on an oversimplified premise. They have taken a brief look at what is and have diagnosed the problem incorrectly. They have almost completely forgotten about the side effects and have not even considered the root cause. Hence, whatever is improvised as a remedy will hardly cure the condition. Apartheid, both petty and grand, is obviously evil. Nothing can justify the arrogant assumption that a clique of foreigners has the right to decide on the lives of a majority. Hence, even when carried out faithfully and fairly, the policy of apartheid would merit condemnation and vigorous opposition from the indigenous peoples, as well as those who see the problem in its correct perspective. The fact that apartheid has been tied up with white supremacy, capitalist exploitation and deliberate oppression makes the problem much more complex. Material want is bad enough, but coupled with spiritual poverty, it kills. I think that tantamount, if if I was in her shoes, it would be more about him having every possible weapon to be able to avoid getting into a life-threatening situation. And the white minority government was saying that black people were uneducated. You know, all these negative things. Yes. And so... To generalize a culture of people with different religions and different bases, like we talked about the Kosa and the Zulus and there's other factors, to say they're all just not educated and they don't deserve the same things as white people because of this reason, that's another thing to be like, no, that's not true. Yeah. We are not like this. We are individuals. We are people that have the same feelings and all the shit that you guys have. You just want the money and the power and you understand economic things that we might not have grasped. We believe the first principal step by any black political uh, leader is to destroy such a platform and destroy it and you know, without giving it any form of respectability. So once you step in it, once you participate in it, whether you are in the governing party or the opposition, you are in fact giving sanctity to it. You are giving respectability to it. So in a sense, people like Gato Buchelezi, like Machanzma and like Mangope are participants in a white man's game. And they are participants at the expense of the black man. And they are leading black people to a divided struggle, to speak as Zulus, to speak as Tossos, to speak as Pedis, which is a completely new feature in, in political life of black people in this country. We speak as one combined whole, directing ourselves to a common enemy. And we reject anyone who wishes to destroy that unity. And you're right about that. And I think when you when you finally realize that knowledge is power at this point, just like you said, Jocelyn, before it was, you know, Darwin, before it was survival of the fittest. And we're talking physical fit, survival of the physical. Well, as we've moved on, as the planet Earth has moved on, we've gotten away from that. I don't care how much a guy can bench press. I don't care what his 40 time is. Can he deliver an argument in a way that makes sense to the people? And that you can only do that with education, with learning about other philosophers. 
Nelspruit, a small mining town in the northern Transvaal, has for the past week been the focus of the racial tension in South Africa. It started with a protest march by some 400 native women on the police station. The women have long been more militant in their resistance to apartheid laws in South Africa than have been their menfolk. And in Nelspruit this week, the African woman has suddenly become the focal point of resistance to the nationalist government. Nelspruit on the surface this rainy, humid day looks as quiet as that scene on that rustic front porch of the store. But in reality, Nelspruit is still tense after a week of trouble. Big trouble and violence, even in South Africa. By 1962, at the age of 16, Steve was considered an extremely bright pupil and excelled in math and English. And in his school in Ginsburg, he was allowed to skip a grade. Our fight is against the fear and not imaginary hardships. Or to use the language of the state prosecutor, so-called hardships. South Africa is the richest country in Africa and could be one of the richest countries in the world. But it is a land of extremes and remarkable countries. The whites enjoy what may well be the highest standard of living in the world, whilst Africans live in poverty and misery. Poverty goes hand in hand with malnutrition and disease. The incidence of malnutrition and deficient diseases very high among Africans. The incidence of infant mortality is one of the highest in the world. The lack of human dignity experienced by Africans is the direct result of the policy of white supremacy. Also that same year, Steve would see anti-apartheid and activist and community leader Nelson Mandela imprisoned for life for conspiring to overthrow the state due to his social commentary and non-violent protests. White supremacy implied black inferiority. Legislation designed to preserve white supremacy entrenches this notion. I have dedicated my life to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination and I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the idea of a democratic and free society in which all persons will live together in harmony 
and with equal opportunities. It is an idea for which I hope to live for and to see realized. But my Lord, if it needs be, it is an idea for which I am prepared to die. By 1964, at the age of 18, because of him being the top in his class for mathematics, Steve was invited to attend a prestigious boarding school in Alice, Eastern Cape, called Lovedale. His brother, Kaya, was also attending the school, and three months after Steve started his curriculum, his brother would be tied to Poco. Poco was the armed faction of the Pan-Africanist Congress, a group of black nationalists that wanted to violently overthrow the apartheid government. After, a murder, after the murder of several white families, Poco would be labeled a terrorist organization and eventually banned by the government. For the 1963 mass arrests were blamable on bungling by the leadership, nor is there any to trust. In the privacy of his toilet, his face twists in silent condemnation of white society, but brightens up in sheepish obedience as he comes out, hurrying in response to his master's impatient call. In the homebound bus or train, he joins the chorus that roundly condemns the white man, but is first to praise the government in the presence of the police or his employers. His heart yearns for the comfort of white society, and makes him blame himself for not having been educated enough to warrant such luxury. Celebrated achievements by whites in the field of science, which he understands only hazily, serve to make him rather convinced of the futility of resistance and to throw away any hopes that change may ever come. All in all, the black man has become a shell, a shadow of a man, completely defeated, Drowning in his own misery, a slave, an ox, bearing the yoke of oppression with sheepish timidity. Steve Biko's brother would be tried and convicted of having a connection to this group, but later that conviction would be acquitted. And despite no clear evidence that Steve had any affiliation with this organization, Lovedale would expel him. This is the first truth. Bitter as it may be, that we have to acknowledge before we can start on any program designed to change the status quo. It becomes more necessary to see the truth as it is if you realize that the only vehicle for change are these very same people who have lost their personality. The first step, therefore, is to make the black man come to himself, to pump back life into his empty shell to infuse him with pride and dignity, to remind him of his complicity in the crime of allowing himself to be misused and therefore letting evil reign supreme in the country of his birth. This is what we mean by an inward-looking process. This is the definition of black consciousness. Working diligently to become an educated person and exceeded all expectations, what does being tied to a group like POCO do for your future and your voice? company you keep is who you are to most people and that's really what it is is unfortunately that's part of our survival mechanism you know we look at people we look at who they're around that tells us what kind of person they are like 
it sucks because he wasn't a part of it and he didn't do anything to be a part of it, but it was his brother and his brother was close enough. And this is a government who's going to look for any single way, shape and form that they can silence or take away the credibility of this group because this group is making good points and valid points in the wrong ways. But whether they're nonviolent or violent, they're going to want to take away the credibility. But surely that approach inflames racial hatred and anti-whiteism. My lord, blacks are not unaware of the hardships they endure or what the government is doing to them. We want them to stop accepting these hardships, to confront them. People must not just give in to the hardships of life. They must find a way, even in this environment, to, to develop hope. Hope for themselves, for this country now I think that is what black consciousness is all about now without any reference to the white man to try and build up a sense of our own humanity our legitimate place in the world at this point it just sounds like the white minority they may have been in charge but they were afraid. They always knew they were afraid, and their whole goal was to make sure that they kept everybody separated. And I'm talking multiple multiple people, multiple groups of black folks. They probably didn't even know about this group of black folks that might have joined their cause and this move. They just didn't have a way to communicate, and that's what their whole point was. Just make sure that we nip this in the bud as soon as we possibly can. And now, by going after Steve, they just wanted to send a message. Hey, if you are in any way associated with this group, your life will be over. Do you, sir, believe that there's any possibility now or in the immediate foreseeable future of large-scale violence in South Africa? No, uh, there are a lot of people who seem to be very fearful that this may happen. But for my part, I'm convinced that all the responsible leadership of, uh, in the, among the Africans and the Indians is determined at all costs uh, to... Uh, uh, prevent violence if they can possibly do so. By 1965, Steve Biko would continue his education at St. Francis College, a Catholic boarding school in Marion Hill, Natal. The school bred a very liberal culture, and this is primarily where Steve would inherit his political consciousness. He would never say anything directly bad against the Pan-Africanist Congress because he had family members that believed in this organization, but he was turned off because of its racial exclusive outlook. He leaned towards the feeling that all races should unite against the government and any separation of power that race provided would cause the same issues that the Nationalist Party has caused. Uh, what the students are protesting about, by bringing in police and Saracens and dogs uh, and uh, almost soldiers, so to speak. Now, the response of the students then was in terms of their pride. They were not prepared to be cowed down, even at the point of a gun. And hence, what happened, happened. Some people were killed, and this riots just continued and continued. Because at no stage were the young students, nor for that matter, at some stage their parents, prepared to be scared. Now, everybody saw this as a deliberate act of uh, oppressive measures, you know, to try and cow down the black masses. And everybody was determined equally to say to the police, to say to the government, we shall not be scared. 
you know, by your police, by your dogs, and by your soldiers. Now, this is the kind of, you know, lack of fear one is talking about, which I see as a very important uh, determinant in political action. Wanting a multiracial approach in a country that has clearly drawn a line in the sand on race and its relations can cause what kind of issue for his desire to change? I mean, look at our, our his example and an example he you know he probably learned about was Martin Luther King, right? Like all men are created equal is the credo that we want to live under. That we, as good, I think every good human being believes that, and I think that for him. In a time where he is in a violently charged, racially separated country, there was probably a lot of people on both sides of the fence who believed in what he had to say, and meaning that there were white people who probably saw the the atrocity of apartheid and were like, what is happening in my my country? Although it's smart, I think that it's going to take him, it's going to be a lot longer road. And this feels brave because it's somebody standing up for what they believe in because they believe in it and not because it's it's what would work or what people will listen to. I've heard that in the South Africa of today, you can be classified as colored simply by looking colored. Is this in point of fact true? Well, I can give you a quote uh, which may seem amusing, but all the humiliating incidents that occurred in our country when the Department of... Uh, of census started reclassifying people. They all people of the trams in the mornings out of the bus queues and took them up to the native commissioner's office. And some of the tests applied to tell a man that he was not colored was trying to pass a comb through his hair. And the comb stuck, he was told, you're a kaffir. Um, other people whose noses were a bit flat were told, uh, you're not a colored. I think when you come from a place like South Africa and it's so divided at this time, Whites here, blacks here. When you're told your whole life that this group is evil and you end up coming across a white person and you're like, oh, you're not at all what I was taught. You, you, you actually have the same views that I have. And unfortunately, the white people in South Africa at that time, if they spoke out, they would be in trouble. So again, it's just more fear. There's a lot of people out there that want to speak out and say, hey, stop that. But how is it going to affect my immediate family and they just proved that no matter what we'll come for your immediate family doesn't matter if you are not a part of a group if your brother's a part of that group you're still kicking it with your brother this is all fascinating as an outsider visitor uh, i can only say that my feeling is that this is bound to be a very long and probably a very bloody road there is that possibility there is that possibility but as i said earlier on it will be dictated you know uh, purely by the response of the nationalist party if they've been able to see that in rhodesia smith must negotiate with the leaders of the black people in rhodesia yeah uh, yes uh, i think conflict is unavoidable given the predictable response from the present system uh, and this conflict can be pretty generalized and extensive and protracted. Any courageous person who chose to speak out during this time in South Africa, after Nelson Mandela was sentenced to life in prison for peaceful protesting, was incredibly, like a, a level of courage I, I just don't even understand because there is an understanding there. There is an understanding that the moment you open your mouth, you could be risking the lives of you and everyone that you care about. And on top of that, it sounds like Steve had the 
foresight to understand that if we turn it around, now all of a sudden we're oppressing these white people, we're no better. We're no better. But is there any corollary, do you think, between American segregation and South African apartheid? No, I think, uh, well, in one sense, I think it's all part of a world pattern. Mm -hmm. I think that the white race as a whole find it extremely difficult to realize that they can no longer dominate the whole world. But the thing that encouraged me in America is that in spite of what has happened and is happening, the general trend is in entirely the opposite direction from what is happening in South Africa. By 1967, Steve Biko would decide not to follow in his father's dream of being a lawyer due to his feelings on law and the justice system currently in place, and would decide to become a doctor, attending the University of Natal Medical School, and by 1968, he would get involved in many student protests, something that would be happening across the world at the time. Many a hospital official has been confounded by the practices of Indians who bring gifts and presents to patients whose names they can hardly recall. Again... This is a manifestation of the interrelationship between man and man in the black world, as opposed to the highly impersonal world in which Whitey lives. These characteristics we must not allow ourselves to lose. Their value can only be appreciated by those of us who have not as yet been made slaves to technology and the machine. One can quote a myriad of other examples. Here, Black consciousness seeks to show the black people the value of their own standards and outlook. It urges black people to judge themselves according to these standards and not to be fooled by white society into having whitewashed themselves and made white standards the yardstick by which even black people judge each other. By July of 1967, he would have been elected to the SRC, the Students' Representative Council, and would attend a conference of the National Union of South African Students at Rhodes University. Upon arrival, he would see that the apartheid laws were being represented and accommodations were arranged for white and Indian students that are booked at the conference, but the black delegates were told they can go sleep at a black church. The meeting made Steve Biko rethink his multiracial approach as all the black delegates walked out of the conference, and here's a quote he stated after this conference. I realized that for a long time I had been holding on to this whole dogma of non-racism, almost like a religion. But in the course of that debate, I began to feel there was a lot lacking in the proponents of the non-racist idea. They had this problem, you know, a superiority. They tended to take us for granted and wanted us to accept things that were second class. They could not see why we could not consider staying in that church, and I began to feel that our understanding of our own situation in this country was not coincidental with that of these liberal whites. In the first instance, I think uh, blacks have flexed their muscle a bit, and they now know the degree of dedication that they can find amongst their own members when they are called to action, and they now know the kind of response they will get uh, from the various segments of the population, the youth, the oldies, and so on. And the second lesson, of course, is the response from the government and the white population at large. The government responded in one way, and the white population also in another way. Uh, one doesn't want to get into details here, but, you know, uh, reading news newspapers, you get some kind of idea of the extent of fear that was 
prevalent in white society at a particular time, especially just after the first onslaught in Soweto, uh, where there was a real fear throughout the community, throughout the country. Nobody knew just where something would happen next. Black Africans had to overcome the enormous psychological and cultural damage imposed on them by a succession of white racists and a government that made its racism law. Despite completely understanding his position, was a nonviolent approach to this ideology possible at this stage? It, it's hard to say what's possible because everything is technically possible done the right way. And, and in, in, a, in a world where Steve Biko had the resources that we do today, like the Internet and social media, I think it's possible. I think he what would need nonviolently in this day and age, he would need a massive amount of people to be on his side. That's the only way that it would work. But in this day and age, if we may, apartheid is not possible. It's not possible. Yeah, because uh, that's what of I'm that. saying because of exactly what you said. Yeah. So I don't think there was a way nonviolently for him to, you know, what is he going to do nonviolently that's going to change? Because all that he's going to do is speak out, put into jail, right? So where is the, where's the option? What option has, has the Nationalist Party left them? We are going to change South Africa. All we've got to decide is the best way to do that. And as angry as we have the right to be, let us remember that we are in the struggle to kill the idea that one kind of man is superior to another kind of man. And killing that idea is not dependent on the white man. We must stop looking to him to give us something. We have to fill the black community with our own pride. We have to teach our children black history. Tell them about our black heroes, our black culture, so they don't face the white man believing they are inferior. Then we'll stand up to him any way he chooses. Conflict if he likes but with an open hand too, to say that we can all build a South Africa worth living in. A South Africa for equals, black or white. A South Africa as beautiful as this land is, as beautiful as we are. I do think that's an option for the nonviolent protest. Um, but again, I think what would have to happen is, is if you do the nonviolent protest, you would have to make the outside world come to your aid. And once you are constantly, without question, without question, viewed as a victim, which they clearly are, you can do it, but it's going to take a lot more time and you have to have a lot more patience. And when every single day and every day you wake up and you hold on to this non-racist religion that he previously spoke of, and you're just getting kicked down and kicked down and kicked down, everyone's going to have a breaking point. The surge towards black consciousness is a phenomenon that has manifested itself throughout the so-called third world. There is no doubt that discrimination against the black man the world over fetches its origin from the exploitative attitude of the white man. Colonization of white countries by whites has throughout history 
resulted in nothing more sinister than mere cultural or geographical fusion at worst. Or language bastardization at best, it is true that the history of weaker nations is shaped by bigger nations. But nowhere in the world today do we see whites exploiting whites on a scale even remotely similar to what is happening in South Africa. There's still going to be people finding out about what happened, right? But it's not like today. It's not like today in that it happens in South Africa and for many decades until the internet becomes available, it takes weeks and months for that information to dissipate throughout the world. By the time the weeks and months have passed, that activist is dead in jail. You know, what? there's no way for them to get help. How many burger you believe in apartheid as a way of life? Yes, I do. Why? In South Africa. Why is that, sir? Uh, because the race, which is in uh, a lesser state of development, is by far in the majority here. And numerically, of course, they are much stronger. And because also I believe that it is according to God's will that the white race, which is in the majority in this country, should be preserved. And also everything we have done in the last 300 years and built up in the church and in the state should be preserved and not be swallowed up by an, I wouldn't say inferior race, because it, I don't believe it is an inferior race, but a lesser a, a, a race which is in a lesser state of development, that's all. But at this point, too, in the 60s, all over the world, people were fighting these minor battles. Like, it's not like, I mean, people talk about 60s here in America, like it's the most racist place in the world. Well, clearly it's not. Clearly it's not. But again, look at how long the Emancipation Proclamation, look at how long, you know, it, do black the civil folks, rights movement. That's what I'm saying. There are still golf courses out there that don't allow black dudes. Yep. You know, I mean, it's like, it's still, and again, and it's catching on, and it's catching on. South Africa didn't have that luxury just yet. At this point, it's him versus an, 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 a completely insurmountable odds. The black man is well able, and the white man knows it. I mean, the irony of that kind of situation is that when the white government negotiates so-called independence for the so-called trans guy, they don't speak in terms of a qualified franchise. In the trans guy, every trans guy votes, you see? And uh, you get white nationalist politicians arguing that this is a system which is going to work for the trans guy. But somehow, when it comes to the broader country, the blacks may not vote because they don't understand the sophisticated, you know, um, economic patterns out here. They understand nothing. So they, they need to operate at a different sort of level. Now, this is all nonsense. It is meant to entrench the white man in the position in which he finds himself today. We will do away with it altogether. There will be a completely non-racial franchise. And um, the black and white will vote as individuals in our society. That in the moment statement would get Steve Biko labeled as someone who wanted to kill white people and his brother's ties to Poco would start to undercut his message. And instead of a peaceful protest, which he was, the media would start to paint him as a terrorist and someone who wanted to kill white people. But there are people, and there are many people, who have despaired of the efficacy of nonviolence as a method. They are of the, of the view that the present nationalist government can only be unseated uh, by people operating a military wing. I don't know if this is the final answer. I think in the end there is going to be uh, a totality of effect of a number of change agencies 
in operating in South Africa. I personally would like to see less groups. Uh, I'd like to see groups like ANC, PAC, and the Black Consciousness Movement deciding to form one liberation group. By 1969, Steve Biko would form SASO, South African Students Organization, and this is where Biko, in conversation with other black student leaders, would adopt this ideology called the Black Consciousness. Do you, Mr. Payton, fear in the foreseeable future any widespread violence in South Africa? Well, that's what everyone fears. It's not just me. It's not, I mean, whether you're a white nationalist or whether you're a black man or whether you're English-speaking, whether you're an Indian, I think all of us have that fear that violence one day will. There will be violence one day. Wikipedia has the black consciousness ideology defined as an attitude of mind, a way of life. The basic tenet of black consciousness is that the black man must reject all value systems that seek to make him a foreigner in the country of his birth and reduce his basic human dignity. Black consciousness centered on psychological empowerment through combating the feelings of inferiority that most black South Africans exhibited. To take part in the African Revolution, it is not enough to write a revolutionary song. You must fashion the revolution with the people. And if you fashion it with the people, the songs will come by themselves and of themselves. In order to achieve real action, you must yourself be a living part of Africa and of her thought. You must be an element of that popular energy that is entirely called forth for the freeing and the progress and the happiness of Africa. There is no place outside that fight for the artist over the intellectual who is not himself concerned with and completely at one with the people in the great battle of Africa and of suffering humanity. Biko believed that as part of the struggle against apartheid and white minority rule, blacks should affirm their own humanity by regarding themselves as worthy of freedom and its attendant responsibility. It applied the term black Africans, but also to Indians and coloreds. Biko promoted the slogan, Black is Beautiful, explaining that this meant, man, you are okay as you are. Begin to look upon yourself as a human being. In view of the daily indignities, humilities, and in some cases actual hardships, economic and otherwise, that the non-European is subjected to because of the apartheid laws, do you ever wonder at or puzzle that a non-European can ever be civil to a white? Well, that thought often occurs to me, Mr. McCutcheon, because, you know, we have many uh, non-European friends, and sometimes you do wonder how they can uh, go on liking you, you know. Biko has also promoted the strength of the mind and its power over oppression by saying no and suffering the consequences of the oppressor shows the evil behind the oppressor, but makes a martyr of the protester. What flaws can this message have in creating actual change from the white minority that runs this country? I think when you're a martyr and you go out there and you put your name on something, just like you said, you're going to inspire the right people, and you're also going to inspire the wrong people. I'm sure there were some people out there that took the Black is Beautiful message, and they were like, yes, let's all rejoice. We're all, we can all be one. We are beautiful. We are people. But there was we probably deserve. a lot of white people that were like, um... But there were also some black people, too, that were like, let's kick this up a notch. 
and let's treat them the way they've treated us mm-hmm. when they got that same message. I mean, again, whenever you put out a message, you don't know how someone's going to take it. And I'm sure he's had to explain himself more than a few times and even unjustly have to explain himself. No, our movement seeks to avoid violence. But your own words call for direct confrontation. That's right. We demand confrontation. Isn't that a demand for violence? Well, you and I are now in confrontation, but I see no violence. (laughs) But nowhere in these documents do you say that the white government is doing anything good? Well, it does so little good, my lord, that it is not worth commenting on. To turn the other cheek after someone does something on this level is a lot harder than I think people think. Absolutely. Like, it's very hard to be like, okay, well, you know, all of our friends and family were murdered by cops and all these things happened and you guys took us away from our homes. But since we're now, you know, on even ground with words, we're not going to hate you and we're not going to be violent towards you despite the fact that you pretty much treated us like dogs. Right. It's it's people expecting people to react civilly to Mm. uncivilized treatment. Yes. Do you find any conflict between apartheid and Christianity? No, certainly not. As a matter of fact, our Dutch Reformed churches are doing much more for the Christianization of of the non-white people in this country than any other Protestant church uh, in this country and anywhere in Africa. In January 1971, Steve would write an article that would place a large spotlight on him and release it under his name, Steve Biko. The article was White Racism and Black Consciousness. Here is the opening two paragraphs to his article. No race possesses the monopoly of beauty, intelligence, force, and there is no room for all of us on the rendezvous of victory. I do not think Ami Cesars was thinking about South Africa when he said these words. The whites in this country have placed themselves on a path of no return. So blatantly exploitive in terms of the mind and body is the practice of white racism that one wonders if the interests of blacks and whites in this country have not become so mutually exclusive as to exclude the possibility of there being room for all of us at the rendezvous of victory. The white man's quest for power has led to destroy with utter ruthlessness. Whatever has stood in his way, in an effort to divide the black word in terms of aspirations, the powers that be have evoked a philosophy that stratifies the black world and give preferential treatment to certain groups. Further, they have built up several tribal cocoons, thereby hoping to increase intertribal ill feelings and to divert the energies of the black people towards attaining false prescribed freedoms. There are, I am sure, devout believers in apartheid who are also devout Christians. Can these two, apartheid and Christianity, in your opinion, be reconciled? I'm quite sure that they cannot. One of the mystifying things to me is how anybody who claims to be a Christian can be a disciple of apartheid. Continuing, he shines a light on a term that has withstood and regurgitated many times over with his closing argument entitled guilt. How many white people fighting for their version of a change in South Africa are really motivated by genuine concern and not by guilt? Obviously, it is a cruel assumption to believe that all whites are not sincere, yet methods adopted by some groups often do suggest a lack of real commitment. The essence of politics is to direct oneself to the group which wields power. Most white 
most white dissident groups are aware of the power wielded by the white power structure. They are quick to quote statistics on how big the defense budget is. They know exactly how effectively the police and the army can control protesting black hordes, peaceful or otherwise. They know to what degree the black world is infiltrated by the security police. Hence, they are completely convinced of the impotence of the black people. Why then do they perish in talking to the blacks? Since they are aware that the problem in this country is white racism, why do they not address themselves to the white world? That white power presents itself in totality, not only provoking us, but also controlling our response to the provocation. This is an important point to note because it is often missed by those who believe that there are few good whites. Sure, there are a few good whites, just as much as there are a few bad blacks. However, what we are concerned here is group attitudes and group politics. The exception does not nullify the rule, it merely substantiates it. What we are concerned with here is group attitudes and group politics, for the exception does not nullify the rule, it merely substantiates it. The overall analysis, therefore, based on the Hegelian theory of dialectic materialism, is as follows, that since the thesis is a white racism, there can only be one valid antithesis, a solid black unity to counterbalance the scale. If South Africa is to be a land where black and white live together in harmony without fear of group exploitation, it is only when these two opposites have interplayed and produced a viable synthesis of ideas and a modus vivendi, where we can never wage any struggle without a strong counterpoint to the white races that permeate our society so effectively. One must I immediately dispel the thought that black consciousness is merely a methodology or a means towards an end. Steve Biko's terminology and protest of a government that is racist and truly oppressive has been bastardized by many of their own causes and in many ways lessened his groundbreaking truthful observations and intelligence of a very dark and evil time on this planet. What happens to a protester's message when it becomes a label consumed to win arguments instead of opposed governments that oppress its people? Well, it depends on who's getting the message. And again, it depends on who's perpetrating the message. I mean, again, it depends on where you're hearing that message. Somebody could just go ahead and spin it their own way. I mean, how many people took his message and then just like you or just, just like one of us and another white person's like, well, what do they mean by that? Well, they're basically saying, and yeah. then they turn around and you're like, whoa, 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 I didn't say that at all. That's what's going on. Uh, if you don't, unfortunately, when you when you don't get that message directly from the horse's mouth, it's going to get distorted. It's a game of telephone. And you can take what Steve said, and you can spread fear. You can spread fear. He's not trying to spread fear. He's just going, guys, give me a break. Just give me a chance. Just give us a chance. We're people, too. That's what the message is. But if it was a white dude back in those days, filled with fear, explaining what Biko said to another white dude who's also filled with fear, now all of a sudden you have two people that are on, they're on guard. Instead of being accepting to the message, now it's like, what do you want? You know, it, again, it, it happens to this. It, to this day, to this day, it still happens. You, sir, have been fighting a fight for a long time that requires, as I see it, 
a great deal of quiet, sustained courage. Don't you ever have a sense of futility, of, of uselessness? Well, there come times, of course, when uh, one does feel that uh, uh, you're frustrated in what you're trying to do, and yet, on the other hand, there's a, a great thrill in it. So we've actually covered a ton of stuff on on our podcast that that we talked about like the Me Too movement and stuff, right? Where anyone can take any message and they can make it about them. And in making it about them, you don't make it about the message anymore. When you take somebody's, when you take a good intention, when you take a good message, when you take a revolution on, on some level and you try and make it subjective and you try and make it about you and fit in your life, then you take away the message, right? You take it, you make it about you and then it's not about the message anymore. And I think that that's what probably was happening, especially in a time where we have to continue to reiterate, because I think people forget how slowly information moved back then. Slow. So as much as like we can call out people for not saying the right thing today, it took months and months for people to find out people were spreading lies. Hence, one is forced to conclude that it is not coincidence that black people are exploited. It was a deliberate plan which has culminated in even the so-called black independent countries not attaining any real independence. With this background in mind, we are forced to believe that it is a case of haves against have-nots, where whites have always been the haves and the blacks have always been the have-nots. There is, for instance, no worker in the classical sense among whites in South Africa, for even the most downtrodden white worker still has a lot to lose if the system is changed. He is protected by several laws against competition at work from the majority. He has a vote and he uses it to return the nationalist government to power because he sees them as the only people who, through job reservation laws, are bent on looking after his interests against competition with the natives. It should therefore be accepted that an analysis of our situation in terms of one's color takes care of the greatest single determinant for political action, which is color, while also validly describing the blacks as the only real workers in South Africa. It immediately kills all suggestions that there could ever be effective rapport between the real workers, who are black, and the privileged white workers, since we have shown that the latter are the greatest supporters of the system. True enough, the system has allowed so dangerous an anti-black attitude to build up amongst whites that it is even taken as almost a sin to be black, and hence the poor whites, who are economically nearest to the blacks, demonstrate the distance between themselves and the blacks by an exaggerated reactionary attitude towards blacks. I would love to see how... A, a real, a real activist like Biko was, I would love to know how he would view some of the things that are going on now. And I would love to see, it's the same thing when somebody uses the term, you're a Nazi. Okay, you just use that too many times. You're watering down what a real Nazi is. People that want to compare the situation in America to apartheid, you're, you, you, you are basically- You've lost your mind. That's what I'm saying. Like You have no fucking clue what you were getting at. And when you go ahead and you were use words like what Biko said for a for a cause that universally can be seen as just and you use it for something that's questionable, 
all of a sudden you're watering down his message. All of a sudden, Biko, it's amazing. Like we were talking about it earlier. Uh, when Steve, when Pete brought up, we were going to talk about them. Like, who is he? And then, but if somebody asked me who Colin Kaepernick was, I knew knew what he did. But this guy was the one. This guy was the one who put himself on the front line first and foremost. When you and others in black consciousness speak, you say. Our true leaders have been banned and imprisoned on Robin Island. Yeah. Who are you referring to specifically? Uh, specifically, we refer to people like Mandela, Sabukwe, people like Govan and Becky. And is it not true that the common factor with these people is that they have advocated violence against the South African government? The common factor with these people is that they have selflessly pushed forward the struggle of the black men. I mean, at the end of the day, what you're saying is that everything is up to interpretation and everything he did was up to interpretation. But even if we take all that out and we take the people making about them away, any time that somebody perpetuated his message that wasn't on his side, they weren't perpetuate because that's what people do. People change the message to fit their narrative. So if I believe in what he says, the verbiage I'm going to use is going to be positive verbs, right? Psychologically, that's what I'm going to do. But if I'm against his message, I'm only going to hear the things that I don't agree with. And those are going to be the things that I highlight. That's, that's how politics works. And this is what, this is what was happening here is that there's two very different sides of the fence. They live on different sides of a, of cities and of a country. And it's, completely and totally separate two separate people having separate points of view spreading the same message and not living in the same world is just not going to have the same effect you cannot in pursuing the aspirations of black people operate from a platform which is meant for the oppression of the black people now we see all these so-called banishment platforms as being deliberate creations by the nationalist government to contain the political aspiration of the black people and to give them pseudo-political uh, platforms to direct their attention to. If you want words to matter in any society or in any place, you have to always have those words come from where they were coming from and where they were written to, you know? And these words were written to apartheid Africa. And that is where the protest lies. So to put his words on a meme with someone else's face with a different fucking cause or a different reason... You are killing his words. These words are for one of the most unjust things that ever happened, you know. And you're minimizing his cause, too. And don't minimize it. Exactly. Don't minimize it. Don't use his words. He used them, and he knows why he used them. And because he used them in 2019, there is no apartheid. He's one of the voices that did that. And that's where I feel regurgitating words from great leaders like that is such a disservice and such just a, a disrespect to their legacy. His legacy is what he left behind and it doesn't have to do anything with us. Now we as uh, BPCI uh, am a member of the Black Conscious Movement. I was a member of BPC before I was banned and uh, now I have been, I'm told, appointed as um, honorary president of BBC. Now, the line that BBC adopts is to explore as much as possible uh, nonviolent means within the, within the country. And that is why we exist. Well, we're living in a world today where even on a very tiny, small scale, and, and it's important to the people that it's affecting, rights are being taken away. Rights that people had last year, they no longer have. And people forget that if you 
bastardized to use that term or you water down or you you know make this shit part of pop culture it takes the steam out of it you need to give it the same amount of levity that it had when we needed it than than today like write, write your own paper yeah write your own paper don't steal steve biko's uh, my worst fear is that working on the present uh, analysis conflict can only be on a generalized basis between black and white uh, we don't have sufficient groups who can form coalition with uh, blacks that is groups from the whites at the present moment but uh, the more such groups come up, the better to minimize that conflict. Thank you very much. Follow my co-host Brandon Hahn on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Hahn Comedy. Jocelyn Sharp on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Jocelyn Sharp. And Sylvia Alvarado on Twitter and Instagram at It's the Sylvia. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Rise to Offend and on Instagram at Rise to Offend Official. Make sure to listen to us every Monday on the Metal Sucks podcast on MetalSucks.net. Email us comments, questions, errors we may have made, or any figure you would like us to cover rise to offend at gmail.com discover the life and work of steve biko find his speeches on youtube.com and locate the steve biko foundation at www.sbf.org.za also check out all the books written by and on steve biko where ebooks are sold and discover the film by richard attenborough called cry freedom starring denzel washington and kevin klein all content on this show is copyrighted by its owners. Thank you all so much for the reviews on iTunes. These five-star reviews are helping this show grow and is all we can ask for from you guys. Please, if you listen to the show and appreciate all the hard effort behind it, review the show on iTunes for us. It truly means the world that you take the time to listen and to review the show. Next week, we will do part two of two on Steve Biko. Until next week, repeat offenders, RTO podcast, signing off.